Hello and welcome to Better Beings, a podcast bringing ideas for happier, more balanced and fulfilling lives. Better Beings brings together innovative and diverse thinkers to discuss the key challenges facing humanity from the worlds of business, creativity, spirituality and wider society. We believe that a more human approach will unlock the future we need. Kinder connection to ourselves and each other is the starting point. Better Beings is a home for diversity of thought and backgrounds and a safe space for authentic and challenging perspectives. Our guest today is Ayan Saeed, a gender equality consultant and founder of Voicing Voices, an international advocacy firm dedicated to multi-level representation in global decision-making processes. To find out more about Ayan and her work, please visit the show notes for further details. Everything else will come out in our conversation. I'm Joel Brevet, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Johnston. Okay. Hi, guys. It's really lovely to be here with you, Ian. I was just reflecting before we came on air that... um, yeah, just how much amazing energy you have. And the first time we connected, how what a profound impact you made. So delighted to have you on here with us. And thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. How's I can only corroborate. I, I'm good. I was just going to yeah corroborate what you're saying. Obviously, I've, a, I've had a chance to speak to Ian before, and it was thanks to your introduction as well, Mike. And we had a, yeah, a, a lovely conversation. It's actually a shame that we've not been able to... Uh, pick that back up but I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today. Feels like a lifetime ago that was the beginning right when we were really gathering the tribe as we called it and right. the community together so mm-hmm. I'm excited to it's like a catch-up essentially it feels like mm-hmm. a much needed um, catch-up that's been pending. Yeah no it's amazing I mean this is going to be a little bit out there but uh, <laughs> I, think our, I think our audience will expect some of this but I mean it, it it was a long time ago, probably, I don't know, anyway, 18 months or so at least. Um, but time is perhaps non-linear, some would say. Mm-hmm. So we've all been doing our bits and pieces and I'm really hopeful that we'll spend more time together in the coming months and do some cool stuff. Um, but yeah, we'll get on, to, get on to what we've all been up to and delighted about it. So yeah, how, how are you generally, Ian? Oh, you've met me or we are doing this at a really great um, space in my life where I feel aligned and I feel really passionate about the different projects I'm in. And it's also a testament to how our journey started together and how the entire community came together regarding having alignment and purpose and being relentless in that vision of humanizing our systems. Mm. So I'm excited to... um, you know, connect on that and kind of share how I was inspired by Wedding Herons and the Purpose for Disruption group to see that there were so many people out there that were driven by the same values and ethics in designing a better world. So thank you for having me on your podcast. Better nice things. <laughs> nice one. Well, the purpose of these of these podcasts is to bring different perspectives all about that humanizing point so um yeah you you are a amazing addition to the conversations we've had already and yeah really really looking forward to it do you, do you want to kick off maybe just by 
yeah, share a bit more about the joy that you're experiencing at the moment, what you're up to? Um, so to me, this year, I just turned 30 in December, end of um, 2022, and it has been like a new decade and defining what did this new decade mean for me, both in business, both in personal, and something that has been um, a priority for me is alignment. I felt like through voicing voices, through other projects and jobs I was involved in, it was bits of everything in different spaces. And I kind of wanted to find uh, alignment and also continuity. I don't know if I'm (laughs) pronouncing that correctly, but just continuity of whatever that I do starting this new decade, I want it to be leading up to our Agenda 2030, our long-term goals, our... um, sustainability essentially and not sustainability that is short term but really generational and that has been um, kind of what I've been aligning everything towards so in terms of um, voicing voices and as a social entrepreneur I've been really focused on young people and women and marginalized communities and as privileged and fortunate I am to now be in so many conversations locally and globally how do I bring everyone with me in doing that? And then on another side, I and this is where we've connected on, Mike, it's the ESG scope and how I'm, I'm really shifting mindsets towards systems and processes and capturing that through my role as an ESG program manager at Duke Corporate Education. And what they're really focused on is building um, executive leaders that are aligning value with values, that are not seeing impact as just a from the lens of it being you know the standards via regulations or policies but really saying actually by taking this ESG lens you get to resolve so many challenges simultaneously and it's providing this systemic um, approach so we're not again in what I've been experiencing of doing different things small things here and there when we could just really collectively come together and say How can we use all of our different diverse um, thinking? How can we utilize our workforce? How can we utilize our young people? How can we utilize everything essentially to drive purpose and sustainable change? So I feel very lucky to be able to do my work with Voice and Voices with marginalized communities, but also have access to executive leaders through my um, work with Duke CE to drive um, change from top level as well. Amazing. So could you, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing hearing that scope, but it'd be really good, I think, for our listeners and even for me again, just to kind of remind us the scope of voicing voices and what that does outside. <laughs> yeah, of course. Exactly. What it does, again, um, and this is the reason why I'm so committed to alignment, is that initially voicing voices is 15 years of work that I've invested into Tower Hamlets in East London that I've wow. invested into communities in Southeast Asia, Asia, Cambodia, and how civil war has impacted the women and young people there, and how we can advocate on how um, they've utilized different tools of empowerment, even in those tragedies that people are suffering through. I really wanted to voice that it isn't just a depressive story but once we voice our voices we can showcase and connect on empowerment as well 
And with Voicing Voices, for me, I, I wouldn't say I planned for it, to be very honest with you. I never thought I come from a background of my first career was a biomedical scientist. You know, I love the sciences. Sciences, I think, thinking back on it now, prepared me for entrepreneurship in the problem-solving aspect, in the whole testing out different methods and really being agile in our approach to solving things. But I felt restricted in the lab and like the biomedical um, scope of things. So I wanted to share the scientific thinking with young people, then maybe they can apply that to different things. So I became a teacher for six years, science teacher um, locally, and then I moved to the Middle East um, to do that. And then I felt restricted in the system, you know, oh, you're too passionate, just focus on your class, focus on your students. And I couldn't. And as I said, it wasn't by choice. I am genuinely driven by this feeling that keeps me up of I have to do something, I have to do something, I have to do something. And voicing voices is that I have to do something so that I have the agency and the access and the um, creativity to design any project or provide any support that really is centered around humanizing systems so we've done the healthcare systems we've done I've gone back into the education system as a intersectionality consultant to come in from that lens instead of the classroom aspect I've gone into the United Nations and really discussed all these policies you're designing. First, you've told us it's the Millennium Goals. Now you're telling us it's the Sustainable Development Goals. But we're still not seeing enough representation. And now for the first time, they've got a youth office. So last year, you know, we had a youth declaration where young people from all over the world came together in New York and said, you know, we we want change. If you want us to be part of Discuss Transformation, where's the seat? You know, we can't just be having empty conversations anymore. And that has now led to there being a youth office in the United, within the United Nations now where we could really have a space. So that's why turning 30 and coming into um, the executive leader aspect, it, it fills me with hope to for voicing voices to be driven by the youth now. And I feel like the past few years, we've really laid out the foundation We've got a framework in place, you know, it's a systemic framework focused on individual community and society on, you know, the workplace or their systems and also driving legislations and regulations to take into account the lived experiences of people that we are designing for. So really driving intentional design for the people by the people. And so that's kind of where Voice and Voices sits right now. I still don't know how that looks. I'm still in the past few months, really been exploring how I can wear both hats and really honour um, the opportunity I'm having with the people that have been very supportive of me and this vision and how I can really respect the different expectations and um, spaces that I'm in and drive this forward. Wish me luck. No, of course, yeah. Quite a lot. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah I mean, exactly. It's, go, go for it, Mike. You said, you said you're 30, but like, I mean... I, I, how have you done all that? In, in, it's a, it's a, one of most people did a lifetime. Um, right, me and you and, combined. And, yeah, well, and, and to get the and to get those to get to that place of, of seeing things in that systemic way. Um, I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit more in a bit about the the leadership um, work you're doing because that sounds fascinating. But I guess I'm kind of interested in why you and and other guests we've had actually on this podcast I mean I guess it's in some ways it's 
we, we, we have sort of started to find a tribe of people who see the world in similar ways to us. Like what's led you to, to, to the systems lens, to, to seeing things in the, uh, to seeing things systemically. Has that always been the, the way you've, you, you've shown up or like, how, yeah. Where does that come I think, from? I think the reason why the age has a significance for me and I, you know, brought that into the conversation is my way of surviving through the inequalities or, I mean, as a intersectional woman, as, you know, I'm coming from multiple backgrounds, whether it's faith, whether it's race, whether it's even my neurodiversity and the way I'm approaching and looking at things, I really feel like I've missed out on so much in life and I really feel like I've spent majority of my life um, convincing that I had a right to exist with my intersectionality, um, convincing others of our value. Um, it was the normalization of my experiences, you know, coming in for more and how that's okay that children and women are affected disproportionately. It's just collateral damage and the acceptance of that, the lack of trauma support for marginalized communities that are experiencing these systemic aspects. So for me, there was no, even if I've seen it, even if we do have individuals that are on board, and that's why I have the framework of like, not just about individuals, not just about communities, but also laws and systems have to be brought into the conversation. Because even if you have one individual on board, if the entire environment around them is reminding them that this is okay, it doesn't matter how much we empower an individual. Mm. And that's kind of also the teaching aspect is, Back in 2015, 16, I used to have a board on my wall that said, I am a success. I'm going to make my parents proud. And I used to make my um, students recite these positive affirmations every day. And bear in mind, these were students from Tower Hamlets, where we had poverty, where we had, you know, knife crimes, where we had kids witnessing their friends lose their lives. And, you know, these were really real life things, but they were expected to just perform in class. And mm. for me, that didn't make sense. And they're like, he just has to get on with it. And that also comes back to the home and our upbringing, even like beyond race and stuff, are generational um, differences from the previous generations that have come on who've also, the East and the West, who've survived, who are, who are involved in wars and conflicts, you know, and having been expected to just survive through it, to just get on with it. So for me it had to be systemic because or else I and I really believe in three generations we can see the needle shifts and that's been my driver of if that system changes and it won't change overnight I'm willing to invest everything into it in order to make sure that the generations to follow know that it's not okay anything that I've lived through or my peers have lived through or my generation has lived through or my community has lived through it is not okay and I'm willing to spend the rest of my life shouting about it and really letting everybody know in every way that we deserve a life, an equitable life. Would you care to maybe, I mean, again, if you're comfortable with it, expanding a little bit maybe then on your own uh, history, personal background as to like, I mean, as you're talking about those intersections of race, of faith, of neurodivergence and that feeling of missing out, like how that has been something that maybe you felt in throughout your life, because I think, yeah, again, like I wouldn't want our, our, our listeners to assume like what you mean by some of those things. And so if you could just elaborate a little bit more. 
Yeah, practically, like, speaking, um, growing up in the education system, like, it took me now, in the in 2020, after COVID, and I sat down with myself, and also by being, I think, lucky to have met people in the business world, for me to realise I love business, and for me to have felt empowered by business. But when I was growing up, I still had the, the same way I am now in terms of being outspoken, in terms of being driven, in terms of being passionate. I had that when I was 13, 12 years old and studying but it was seen as disruptive. It was seen as, oh, hold her down, like, you know, make her smaller, make her smaller and let her follow the things. And obviously that affected my personality, that affected how I show up, that affected when I was going into college and I wanted to do certain subjects and I displayed my skills. They were like, oh, but a lot of peers from your background or from this group do these subjects. So I was, my life, the trajectory of my life was shifted to if we're looking at gender and the kind of roles that are, promoted for young women or young girls that they should go into I was shifted into the humanitarian sector and the charity sector and really that community aspect to it but if I was also introduced to the business lens of things if I was really introduced to tech if I was introduced to these I I used to love IT you know but Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it could mean I knew I loved the information and working and attending those classes but how it could influence my life or how it could turn it into a job. I, I didn't have access to that information. You know, I was w- walking blindly to it. So then when I went into the teaching and those roles, that still couldn't hold that ambition because classroom and, you know, they were like, you're too much. So, so for me, that's the lived experiences that I'm talking about, that the work that I'm doing, I could have started it earlier. It took me, it took so many trials and tribulations and trauma and forcing my people into and then getting that rejection. And of course, I'm no regrets. (laughs) Like looking at it today, I had to go through everything because now I know where the gaps are. Now I know because of the risks that I took, the challenges that other people would also have, you know, exposed me to a lot now that I can use to, to create projects for, to create initiatives for, to connect people to, to bridge gaps with. So I don't regret it, but I am very angry that (laughs) I've missed out on a lot in my life. I am frustrated that I had that loss. Yeah, I suppose the Rumi quotes came to mind of like, you know, as we move, the path appears. And so it's good that you've <laughs> ultimately True. found found the path through those uh, yeah. adversities and those challenges. Mm. And this is going to sound, I don't know, I'll say it anyway, it's going to sound a bit a bit trite and, and, and unthoughtful perhaps, but everything you just said, uh, the power of your experience and and sharing that with others um yeah i think is can and already is clearly being incredibly powerful it is very powerful so yeah thank you for walking that path i'm sorry i think something something that i've like picked up on as well from just like you know being on your social media as well is how you've managed to also beautifully turn a lot of what we're talking about here into art you're you're a poet too my expression yeah I love Mm -hmm. I love the creative I'm I'm a I'm a groupie for the creative world I think it's so (laughs) powerful you you know what happens behind the scenes to create one clip of something the amount of hands that go into it behind the scenes the amount of ideas and thought-provoking um creativity that goes into it and I feel like art is a revolution it's our way of really pushing back on the structures or the um 
how do I, I wouldn't say the boxes, but it is, a, it does feel like you're in a squared box and it's like, stay there. That's, yeah, we're, we're all repressed artists. <laughs> we're all repressed artists who are just forced to pay for roofs over our heads. <laughs> so my, my poetry was, is a form of, it was a form of um, really rebelling against that and really advocate. And I, again, I've been so fortunate to have people to, that responded to it they didn't have to you know they didn't it could have been me expressing myself on my own and things like that but and most of my poetry is that it's me writing it for myself and then I would have someone invite me into something and say please just perform this or they'd be like no and I think it could really have relevance to this and that and I don't even know it would because it was just me releasing it was a form of release for me so I've been very fortunate to have that utilized both in business and in the private public, wherever, like it's 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 um it's been heartwarming to really see the world opening up to artists and creative um creative people in different spaces. Can you can you tell us a little bit? Because one of the things that I'm always always thinking about, um, particularly of, of late in the last couple of years, having come from a very scientific kind of narrow focused world the, the the world of big organizations big businesses tell us how you i guess and, and maybe this is a lead into some of the, the leadership work that you do next generation systems thinkers how 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 do you marry personally that scientific rigor and testing and um i guess well quote unquote left brain stuff with the creative like how does that work for you? Self-reflection, um, I think, is a huge part. As I said, I've been on this journey of self-discovery and also being on fight or flight, you know, and my being on fight and flight mode for my entire life has made my nervous system operate from a place of urgency. I'm from that place of urgency I feel like you know when they say pressure builds diamonds when they say when you're under pressure you tend to perform better or you I've just been that kind of that aspect of me is how the creativity kind of comes out of knowing okay then I've got tight limited time and it could be again my um the way my brain also works but I'm like okay I've got short so it's time to deliver so my creativity comes into play in that aspect that I can perform under high pressure I enjoy thinking, am I going to make it or am I not going to make it? Because I'm on that fight or flight mode. So I'm really like energized by that. Or I was in the fight or flight mode. Sorry. Again, as I said, I'm getting accustomed to the space of being taking agency and ownership. But I was in that space and that really helped me. And I appreciate that. But the scientific aspect gave me credibility. I love learning. I love reading. I love understanding I love connecting different things. You give me anything. And that part comes from the poetry as well. You give me one word, I'll create a whole poem from it. You tell me, here's my theme, design something. This is my ultimate vision or outcome. And I'm able to kind of write something based on off of that one word or of that concept. So what the science has given me is credibility for that urgency by allowing me to love learning, to love connecting things, to love analyzing. I think I love data. I love analysis and really understanding the why, the root cause. And given where business is going and design thinking, 
it's really it's that's made the way the world is going has made it easy for me to apply these different elements if i would have mm. been stuck to that way of being for example not having the entrepreneurship mindset i wouldn't have had access to employ my different skills it would have been very linear so that's kind of how i've been able to merge the different aspects because of the different works i've been involved in as well I mean, this very much speaks to a, a, a lot of the. I think this is something that I've often, like me and Mike, we we uh, we we back and forth over that the podcast is better beings, but we so often focus on our better doings and the things that we're mm-hmm. doing. But I think like the, the the being aspect really speaks to like you know who we are, mm-hmm. uh, and like you know what makes you tick as opposed to then mm-hmm. how your ticking applies in the business context. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose one of the things that I'm really interested in is. How do you have a personal kind of philosophy and ethos and mm. spirituality mm. in your life yes, that permeates yes. in how you end up showing up? Yeah. Um, so for me, it was writing. So it could have been for, I can't remember what exactly um, the first aspect of this journey was, but I know mm. it's writing and asking myself the question. The first thing I think I worked on was what was my core values? Mm-hmm. And once I listed my core values, I was like, okay, I know I enjoy, um, you know, I'm an empath that's in my design. So whatever I do, how do I protect like empathy? I used to hate being an empath for the longest time because I saw it as a curse. You know, you feel too much, you're too emotional or you become obsessed as well with being responsible for things, you know, and you feel a high sense of accountability to make things emotionally better in different spaces and obviously that obviously has a turmoil impact on my was having an impact on my health and well-being and what we were discussing for the first part of this podcast about having this mission so things weren't aligning <laughs> my body what I wanted my mind and body to do for this mission or what was happening it wasn't working something it wasn't working out because of whether it's burnout whether it's just feeling overwhelmed and that so I started writing down okay what works what doesn't work um, there is, I don't know if you've heard of the book, The Artist's Way as well, where it's like a 12 week um, program where you become friends with your inner child. Mm-hmm. So really explore um, bringing her to the room or them, them depending on um, how you approach it, but just bringing that part of yourself to the room. And for me, understanding how I've lived through the lens of my inner child from when I was younger and, you know, the experiences I've had, what, how, what was, what did I experience there? I wrote those things out. I traced my roots and my forefather to the 11th century and figured out what's my history so that I could define it for myself Mm -hmm. because that's what I was fighting against was people giving me labels and structures that I didn't emotionally or internally feel aligned with, but it was expected of me, you know? So I really needed to trace things back I fell in love with God from my lens and how I approached it because when you, I had to strip away everything to define myself, to understand my core values because that's what I wanted for me to have sustainability. It had to be for me and not the validation of others. And and I didn't want anything given to me for it. I wanted to earn it so then in that way I could be like, okay, I fought for this, I struggled for this and this is the outcome it's come out of. And it gives you a sense of pride as well over who you are and what you are it gives you a stronger stance for no matter what challenges I was as I'm setting myself up for whatever challenges come my way I needed to make sure my foundation and my skeleton was strong enough or I was self-aware enough 
or I was self-critical enough to kind of understand my experiences in a way that felt true to me because I didn't want to deliver anything that wasn't sustainable. And if something's not true to you, it's not going to be sustainable because you're just going to be adapting depending on where you are. And I really was concerned about that. So I knew the first thing was my roots and who I was and my relationship with God was the first thing. So I really had to strip away every other form of identity and understand what my relationship with God was and, you know, what I felt my spiritual element to it. So as I was understanding the financial and work aspect, as I was understanding mental health and my mind and the way it works, as I was understanding my empathy and my emotions, I also wanted to understand my spirituality and where how faith came into it. And I'll say now, and I will say it to my last breath, if it wasn't for my faith in God, I would not have reached where I am today. Because when I had nothing and I felt like this is a lot, what am I going to do? I really felt something that I could not describe with human words. Like I felt such a strong sense of belief in my vision with what my purpose was. Mm -hmm. It felt such, there was no denying it for me in how I felt. And that didn't come because of qualifications, because of people giving me a chance, nothing. It was literally something out of this world. Like I really (laughs) felt, I really, and I'm grateful for that. And then comes into religion and Islam and being a Muslim woman and the Islamophobia, especially in like, and I'm only realizing the trauma of Islamophobia now because Mm. before, again, it was that normalization of it and being in different communities that people that have never met a Muslim before. But when I share that, those values that I, you know, adhere to and the things that, you know, the, the way, if anything, anyone loves about me is as a result of God and what I have learned through that conversation with God and my relationship with God, you know, and my faith. So it's it's seeing that acceptance, whereas before it was something I should be ashamed of because of the propaganda and all these different things that were on the media about the narratives, same as race. <laughs> you know, I'm not a second-class citizen. There is beauty in my diversity. There's strength in it and there's value that I'm bringing to the table. It's not something that makes me the outsider. I don't feel like an outsider no more because I've been in spaces where all of me was accepted. And that really, that and, and I'm grateful for that. And I wouldn't have been, I don't think, um, I would have been happy to be accepted without the, me being in my truth. And now yeah. I feel so grateful that I was able to go through those struggles, but now where I am and where it has led to, I get to show up as myself, personality, um, into everything, you know, and it's been, it's been a space of gratitude for me. So would you, would you characterize all of this, like, evolution and personal spiritual emotional iteration as a a rebirth yeah yeah um it was a rebirth um that started in 2015 2016 where and it was just with it when I was discovering the education system and the rigidness of it and I felt helpless and again Mm. it could have come from that empathy aspect and honestly I didn't know what to do and I was really really it was a really rock bottom low space for me and then I was like, it was like a submission in some way as well of everything that I thought I was planning for my life. Clearly there's all these, um, there's all these um, barriers to it. So please like guide me. I will, God is the best of planners. So please guide me spiritually and like allow me to be healthy spiritually and mentally for me to carry out this purpose and mission. And that was the rebirth commitment where it was, I would commit to my health and my well-being and making sure that I'm not sacrificing, um, not living in that survival mode. And I'm really going to be present and 
conscious. And that's one thing um, this I learned from Islam and the rebirth was treat this world as if you're a traveler. Serve, 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 and really impart as much as you can with the time that we have. And that remembrance of death is guaranteed. I'm sorry, I don't mean to turn this morbid, <laughs> but death is guaranteed you know death is guaranteed and that's coming up and really being conscious of that and saying with this finite limited time that I have how can I give it and what that has helped me with is being more patient with trials and tribulations it allowed me to overlook um, our human aspects you know the different ways that we have different perspectives we could be looking at the same picture but we'll have all these different perspectives and that's because we've been created differently and we're all dealing with different experiences and all these other things so it brings that together for me everything that comes from you is so profound and in a way that I hadn't experienced too much in the um, world of big organizations big business so when you talk about purpose and your own purpose I mean that is profound and real in a way that much of the experience in corporate life isn't. Um, what am I trying to say? I, I guess like from uh, recognizing that we perhaps need a rebirth of sorts in many of our existing systems and structures. And one of the reasons, certainly to my mind, that these rebirths are not happening and, and the systemic thinking is not happening is because of a narrowness of perspective. Um, mm. The reason that we seem to keep stumbling into global financial crises is because mm. you have a very narrow perspective. Most of these organizations are still run by a narrow group of individuals. And so surprise, surprise, they bring a very narrow way of seeing the world. Mm. I guess maybe the question is, how do we bring more of that diverse diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of background into a world that finds it oftentimes uncomfortable because it challenges their own little sort of narrow. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, their own little narrow. That sounds really unfair. I mean, I've got lots of great friends in that world. I was in that world for a long time, but I don't want to be too critical. But I guess positive, how do we bring more of that diversity of thinking to enable us to move to see different systems? And, and how are you starting to do that with your leadership work? Um, so we deliver intersectionality workshops, right, um, which really focus in on um, understanding the way all these different overlapping identities and experience, lived experiences, I really want to emphasize how our lived experience interact with one another. And when I first came into the social entrepreneur space, it was around gender-based violence and why that occurs, and it was around the time of George Floyd, and why racism occurs, and, you know, about why do we have bystanders? For me, I wasn't really just focused on the people cause it, creating the divide, but also the ones that are silently accepting, or that are on the fence. They don't want to oppress, but they don't really care that the oppression is happening. They're just really neutral in that space, and so I started having these engaging conversations, kind of understanding it, and what really helped me is to not have expectations of people to understand my lens. And I think what we're doing, and that's why I've moved into the ski space and really moved away from the diversity and inclusion space of it being a tick box exercise. It's saying, I would rather that person 
say to me, this is my perspective. I grew up, like I had a woman come up to me and say, I grew up in a household that's super racist. And every uh, every year when I go back home in Christmas, all the comments are that, and I'm exhausted from constantly, now I'm, she goes, now I'm put into a space of either just cutting off my family because how many times am I going to explain the same thing? Or do I become a complicit bystander and just continue that? Do you get it? And when she really expressed that, it emphasizes why we need to shift from holding individuals or humans accountable for being the way they are and really focusing on the systems that have accepted it. Because there's no way we can bridge the gap and expect individuals who've been groomed <laughs> their entire lives to uphold the status quo, to uphold this um, structure that has been passed on generation after generation, we are inheriting and inheriting. And what we are asking people to do now in this era is to bridge that gap by accepting the reality, accepting that these perspectives exist, accepting there are people out there that feel the way they do, are seeing things the way they do. But my hope, not an expectation, but my hope is that they feel driven by seeing the minority groups that are driving this narrative of inclusion and transformation and rebirth, I hope that can see us doing what we're doing and can be inspired to see that it's they can also make that difference and they don't they're not shamed as well. I think shame is a massive, massive, massive aspect to having difficult conversations. We feel ashamed that we don't know something. We feel ashamed that um, we've experienced either oppression or have oppressed that both lenses. When I'm speaking about gender equity, I'm not just speaking about the women that are, the majority of women that are experiencing this gender-based violence. I'm also talking about what led him to do that because the majority of intimate partner violence is from men and male um, family members and all these other aspects. So what's driving them? Because I'm no longer focused on the individual lens and that's what's driving the system is it takes our expectation and our, the pressure off of the individuals and it really looks at the system. So then even if that individual decides I'm not going to change, I've seen how positive diversity is, whatever, whatever, but I'm still not going to change. We will have a system in place that will hold them accountable. So it's really much more sustainable in, in, in built, bridging that gap and not making people putting that pressure on the individual aspect, essentially. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, well, it, it does, <laughs> but, it does it, it's certainly really profound for me. I, one of the things I think about is, is, I mean, shame clearly never works. Shaming anyone never works. Like, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is, is with leaders of the future. Um, what would you, how would you approach some of the incumbent leaders who... I mean, I know in conversations with people that this system actually isn't working for, I mean, this is a really kind of privileged, check my privilege thing to say, but this system is more unjust clearly for, for many than it is for others. But for the leaders at the top of this system currently, I know that they're not loving it. I mean, they might have all the money and power, mm. but... They are, in many cases, not aware, but in others are perhaps more open to certainly thinking about legacy and next generations. Like, how do we engage them in a way that doesn't make them feel shamed or attacked? And I think 
a lot of my inspiration, at, especially um, now with my work at Duke CE, um, Duke Corporate Education. I think it's really costume designing to to address that and meeting people where they're at and what the what we do because um, what sorry just to give a background for those that may not know mm. so Duke Corporate Education is an organization what it does is it trains leaders executive leaders to be more purpose driven to really align um, with the ESG um, standards that we're setting up but in a way where it doesn't feel overwhelming so we really co-design with our clients and it's very bespoke and I think um, by meeting our clients where they are we can have much more enrollment both not just the executive leaders but the middle managers the you know entry um, professional entry point professionals we can really create this collaborative work I think one thing I would say would provoke leaders to say no to this new transformative era that we're in is if they feel that we are um how do how do we say that we are infiltrating that we are basically oh, I forgot the exact um way I can place this by showing them that we're not fighting against them but we're fighting with them in order to we can meet profit I really do I know people say we should profit capitalism and all that is viewed in a negative um way and it is in the sense of when it's used for exploitation and when it's used to disadvantage communities and when people are being left behind, but we can have profit and major revenue and sustainable um, performance and retention, saving money on retention and um, hiring new people. I think by showing them that we are solving problems and it's not this whole, I think there's a fear of this new age wokenism that people Mm -hmm. really, there's a fear around that. And by changing the narrative to make it more inclusive, to say we can work together, it doesn't it doesn't have to be their way or this way. There is a space right there in the middle where we can help enroll executive leaders to meet their targets, their KPIs, their wherever they need to meet. But at the same time, to have a really a a, a space where people enjoy and love working and love their leadership, mm-hmm. like for me working for my CEO, um, Sharmla Chetty, she's an incredible visionaire. And before her, I worked with Qatar Foundation and Sheikh Moza, another woman who's a visionaire. And both of these women have, uh, being CEOs, have shown me with that vision and that more, and including all relevant parties, so we don't use stakeholders, because there's a story behind that as well where, where the term stakeholders actually comes from, but really saying all relevant parties involved. Yeah. Both Where does that come C- from? I've never, I've never, sorry, I've never liked stakeholders, but I didn't know why. Tell me. Tell okay, me. so apparently, back in the days um, when they were when they were doing land grabbing or whatnot, they would get a stake, stick it somewhere, and that stakeholder, that land now belong, belonged to that stakeholder that mm. stabbed that stake into the ground. I think. Um, but nice. I don't have to use it again. I always hated it. Amazing. <laughs> oh, you're, you're, a sh- you're a shareholder anyway. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I like shareholder, but really, um, these two CEOs have and female leaders, and both from um, their intersectional women as well, have demonstrated to me that we can enroll because that's what they both had to do. Being female leaders, they had to both from the Sheikh Moza was in the Middle East, and Shamla Chetty was dealing with Duke corporate, Duke corporate Education, which has four different regions from Singapore to South Africa 
to North America, to the UK. Like she really had to enroll a lot of people to this vision of inclusivity and align and really that we can bridge these gaps. And witnessing that for me and seeing that representation and that possibility makes this a fact, like it's possible. It's not just a dream. It's not just a hope, but there are people out there that are enrolling executive leaders and providing them with the education and the skills to drive change on a systemic level, top down, bottom up, the whole way through. So I suppose in that conversation of hope at large, what is giving you personally hope right now? And what picture of the future do you see? ESG, 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 ESG. <laughs> really? Damn, you're giving me hope. ESG wasn't necessarily giving me hope, but no, sorry. <laughs> ESG is giving me all the hope in the world. Yay. ESG is driving me towards this new decade. ESG is giving me hope for us meeting our Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. I'm loving the fact that we're in a space of uncertainty because that means everyone's going to try to figure out a solution. So I'm excited to really deep dive with diff in different spaces, different, you know, um, regions, different people from different spectrums of ESG. And again, I don't know what the outcome was, but I never knew what the outcome of any part of my life was going to be, but it's working out. So I'm just going to trust that um, the hope that I have for ESG um, driving change. Uh, me hope. <laughs> yeah no 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 for sure uh and do you have any i mean at, at large do you have any kind of like views on the technology the future of like you know how we can maybe even the, i i feel from uh the, the 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 wider topic and how we're discussing it that there is an idea of uh a decolonization of a number of like Ooh. kind of sectors and and Ooh. See, I'm see, I'm, I'm touching a sweet spot with this one. So yeah, one, I want to. I know, I know, I know. The thing is, I, I want to get the cherry on this cake before uh, before you chop up the final few slices, Mike. So I just wonder, do you think there is a, a narrative, or is there is there something you can speak to about the decolonization of like technology and how oh, we can maybe use it moving forward to create more uh, equity? So last, in 2021, um, at Voice and Voices, we designed a program called DecoTech. And we're currently still um, working on that through different um, organizations that support social entrepreneurs and founders on how we can decode the tech industry. And I want to give a huge shout out to HSBC. Absolutely, absolutely in love with what HSBC has been doing in the past couple of years of also decoding the tech world so that it's more accessible for communities so that no one is left behind in the fourth industrial revolution. Um, again, using that framework that I discussed that we use for all of our programs and projects at Voicing Voices, it's that systemic approach. So there's a massive leaky pipeline in the tech industry. We are moving so fast, so fast. And it's very, I wouldn't, for me, it's not scary, it's fun, but um, it is. it can be a space of fear and scary and, you know, overwhelming because we're moving very fast. And if there are, I don't know who the audience is that are listening in, but if they are in that tech industry, please, please, please make sure that no one's left behind the fact that 
you know, less than 5% of leadership positions in the tech industry is held by women. And if you look at um, women of color, that's less than 3%, by the way. So that data, that even goes further down. It's scary for me. And the fact that tech is involved in our day to day, in the data that's been gathered, in what is being used for AI, what data are we using for AI to design these new technological systems that are advancing us it's the same thing as who designed our education system who designed our healthcare system the fact that black women are more likely to die from childbirth why because the healthcare system that was designed didn't take into account their biology and their experiences right and again doing the linking thing same thing with the tech industry we're doing the same exact thing and i'm hoping that all our leaders in that tech industry start investing in programs that solve the leaky pipeline, not just about representation, not just about who's in the decision-making space, not just about the communities that we're serving, but we need to make sure that the entire leaky pipeline from a little girl in primary school to someone that is retiring and can mentor the next generation, that entire lifespan, how are we making sure that the tech industry isn't just serving one lens, one perspective. How are we making it really multi-dimensional? Well, that's giving me hope. So, yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> wow, guys, this is the day of hope. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. How could it not be spending time with you? Um, oh, the, 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 that point around diversity and, and, and new perspectives has come through very clearly in this conversation. And... and I think it's so pertinent for the tech industry, which, I mean, we, we talk about bubbles, right? Um, there's been a, there's been tech bubbles in the past. There've been financial bubbles in the past and they seem to keep, keep coming. And, and, and it does seem that the common thread is just this narrowness of perspective um, and an inability to see a bigger picture from lived experiences as well as um, academic ones. So um, yeah, thank you. That's so, so profound. We always end our um, podcast conversations and it's a shame to have to bring this one to an end because we really enjoyed Very it. Nice. I mean, we, we enjoy all of them, but uh, if you can have personal favourites, this has been one of the best, one of the highlights for me. So thank you. Um, but we do Excuse have to bring it to a close. We, we do have to bring things to a close. Cause... What's that? I say you're very charming. Thank you. Yeah, as I said, you're a smooth operator, aren't you, MJ? Yeah, so just our, our three closing questions before I blush too much to bring it to an end. I um, People are time poor, unfortunately, so we can't go on for, for too long. But so, in fact, well, it looks looking at these three questions because I don't remember them off by heart yet, but... We've covered most of them already, so that's nice. Um, the first one is always, which book would you recommend to our listeners? And we've got that one already. So I'm going to take away The Artist's Way, because that looks amazing, right up my street. So that's the book question covered already, so thank you. Um, I always have way too many books to read, but that one's definitely going to get ordered as well, and hopefully actually... You have to invest in it, Mike. So you have to have a date with yourself. You have to, like, yeah. really do reflection and you know get to know yourself right. okay well all the other books on my park can, can be forgotten about for a bit and i'll go that one goes straight to the top um we also like to ask people just to get a little sense of the creative as well what are you listening to at the moment it could be music podcast anything oh my god i'm really i think because of my old school nature i've really been tapping into like Music from different eras, Sam Cooke, really. I've been getting into jazz as well and your soul. Um, 
Um, and I think that's because of the I'm really trying to explore art more now, especially the culture in the art world in London and how much they've got so many, you know, shows and events really where music is being used as an artistic way of connecting people. So um, I'm enjoying that right now. That's thanks. Cool. Thank you. And the last question is always what's giving you hope? Um, you've probably already answered that one as well, but any other, any other thoughts to conclude? Agency. I think I've discovered my agency this year. So um, having that or of recent. So what's really given me hope is that I don't feel crazy in these ideas anymore. <laughs> that I have the agency to be part of communities to choose. Choice. Choice is a big one. Having choice. And I, I'm driven by the fact, and what I'm, the, the fact and the hope is that I'm around people like you guys and you know, my colleagues that I work with on a day-to-day basis, the people that I've picked up along the way of this long, long journey, they give me hope because they remind me of where I've been. They remind me of where I'm heading. They're, they're the anchor for me. So anytime that I do feel a bit hopeless, God forbid, but anytime I feel that it's reinforced by the community that I have around me that are just so special. I'm really a lucky girl. I'm so, so lucky that I just can't believe it, but I'm grateful for it beautiful it's a lovely final sentiment i think something for us all to remember as well isn't it you know that connection with community and how it actually enriches all of us 100 percent, yeah oh had a bird bird then at the end of that that's yeah yeah it's uh, it's my it's my it's my my local flock this is my community they they come when they know that i'm rounding up my podcast there you go thank you so much Thank you so much. That was amazing. I mean, I overused the word amazing, but that was genuinely great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Well, congratulations, both of you, by the way. I'm so proud of you, Beyond Proud. And I'm excited to see where this journey takes you both on and what you discover through these different conversations as well. Excellent. We look forward to checking in with you again, hopefully sometime soon, and seeing the progress of Voicing Voices and your wider work in education and decolonising tech. Hey, there you go. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks so much. I think it was inspiring to hear the generational long view from Ian. Uh, It was a very emotive and intersectional conversation, which felt as hopeful in tone as any that we've had. I mean, it's not lost on me that Ian is both our youngest guest today, but also a black Muslim woman, which is definitely a challenging super factor in society dominated by you old Christian white men. I mean, it's only, a, it's only a slight dig, MJ. I mean, technically, I'm three or four myself. Yeah, we are We are the worst, the old white guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I actually, first time I met Ian um, a couple of years ago, that energy um, and passion and real, I guess, without wanting to be patronising, that kind of like youthful exuberance just jumped out at me over the phone was the first time we spoke on the phone I mean she that that energy she brings that youthful vibe the I guess diversity of both experience but also challenge um, and having lived as some cases in sort of various challenging marginalized situations that lived experiences really makes um, the room come alive I mean, it's the really standout thing for me from this episode because, yeah, I don't want to kind of sound all fogeyish, but 
Iron reminds me of a younger me when I still thought that incremental changes inside of a corrupt system could be effective. I mean, maybe I've just become more cynical in my old age, but I'm personally hard pushed to believe any revolutionary, humanity-redeeming solutions are going to be underwritten by American asset managers, or any financial instrument for that matter. Yeah, she said, um, it made me chuckle, she said, ESG is giving me hope. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Not giving me hope that much. But um, I don't know, like, one of the things that we need to remember about these organisations, or these organisations, the the world at large, is that we are just collections of human beings, right? So one generation does its bit, tries its best, makes some mistakes, brings its full energy tries to push boulders up hills and then we some of us are a bit older hopefully use that wisdom and then hand over to an extent not that we're hanging hanging our uh, shoes up just yet JB but Ian's energy um, and the fact that she talks about leaders of the future pairing value with values um, gives me lots of hope yeah I think ultimately as well you know my my final reflection on it is we have to remember that every single generation the task kind of gets handed on and so as much as I may begin losing sight I'm actually super grateful for the fact that she's fighting the good fight so all power to her yeah we do I mean if the next generation does genuinely want to be better um so we've got to somehow get there support each other not drive wedges between generations but unleash that next generation as soon as possible thank you for listening to this episode of better beings we are an independently produced show and your support is what helps us develop and grow if you enjoyed this conversation please share it with friends family and colleagues and consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts big thanks to our technical producer elliot fisher and to our researcher and guest facing producer tara rudd Please follow us at Better Beings Pod on both Instagram and Twitter for quotes, updates and guest insights and subscribe and follow on YouTube, Spotify or Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Thank you so much for being with us and see you on the next episode.